Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do every week. This is episode 62. Hope everybody's having a fantastic week out there. I know I certainly am. Uh, got the computer issues from last week fixed. Got a new 27-inch uh, iMac that I'm rocking through this week. So uh, it's it's happy days over here at the Drum Shuffle. We have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm going to be joined by my pal and just a, a super good dude. Kevin Charney is going to be my guest here in just a minute after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabo Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabo Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabo Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Lost Cabo difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody. As I mentioned, I'm going to be joined by my buddy Kevin Charney here in just a moment. Uh, Kevin has been out on the road uh, with Jesse Dayton uh, here recently. They just had come back from a tour of Europe when I caught up with Kevin and uh, he, he's been recording and touring with Jesse for a while. And Kevin also uh, works for one of the, the large backline suppliers down in Atlanta where, that he makes his home. Um, just doing tons of great work out there. But but Kevin has a really unique perspective in that any career that you can have surrounding drums and drumming he has held that job. He has worked retail, he's worked backline, and of course, he's a great artist. Now, after we did this interview, he also sent me a couple of CDs that I have sitting right here on my desk uh, of his band that he played in several years ago called Soda Jerk. And let me tell you, this is some 
fantastic music. Uh, but Kevin's just a great dude. You would be hard pressed to find a nicer human being than Kevin. And we just had such a good time during this interview. Uh, the laughs were coming fast and furiously. Uh, so I, I know that you guys are going to enjoy hearing this and I can't thank Kevin enough for coming on the show. So help me welcome to the drum shuffle, the great Kevin Charney. Hey, good evening, Kevin. How's it going, brother? It's going great, man. How's it going with you? I cannot complain at all. Uh, hey, man, thanks for taking time to come on the Drum Shuffle. We appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I listen to it on the road. Oh, man, that's that's awesome. I love hearing that. You can blame our mutual friend Josh Touchton for that. Oh, my gosh. Josh Touchton. Man, I, I cannot get away from that guy. He's like a, he's like a, a devil. <laughs> he's ever-present. He is indeed but, lurking in the background somewhere. That's right. But we love Josh, man. He's he's done so much cool stuff for this show and for me personally. So uh, but it's great to finally connect with you. I know you just got back from uh, what, about a month or so in Europe. It, yeah, I, I spent a week on a cruise ship and went directly. Literally the day we docked, I got on a plane and flew to Europe for four weeks. So it was a it was a long one. Yeah, for sure. Now, was that the Outlaw Country cruise, or or which which cruise were you guys on? Yeah, it was the Outlaw Country cruise. Okay, this is our fourth year doing it. So. Yeah, we've had a lot of guests that that did that cruise, and um, from what I understand, it's a pretty good time. Oh, it's a blast! Yeah, it's. Um, you know, some people that have never been on a cruise, they're just like, oh, it doesn't seem like it'd be that much fun. It is so much fun. And not only because we get to play, but my family gets to come too, and they have a good time, and it's kind of like their um, their their payback for me being on the road the rest of the year. They get to come on the cruise and see all the great bands that are playing, and, uh, you know, just the people are there to enjoy themselves and really listen to music. So it's everybody has a really good time, but it never gets out of hand. Yeah. Yeah, so for sure. It's, it's, it's a blast. And this year they stopped twice. They made two stops instead of one. So it was a little bit of a longer cruise and it, uh, it was a good time. I always look forward to that. Well, sure. cool, man. Yeah. Well, if you have the flu next year, I'll gladly uh, fill in for you or, <laughs> you know, something like that. You think, you think Jesse would be down with that? <laughs> Okay. Well, Why not? I, I will put it on my calendar then. Uh, sorry to hear yeah. of your pending illness. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, you know, as tradition dictates here on the drum shuffle, let's let's dive back uh, a few years here. Tell everybody how you ended up behind a drum set and where you're from and, and all the good details that that led you up to today. Sure. Um, well, I am a second generation drummer. My dad was a drummer. Um, and I, I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania, um, kind of outside of Scranton. Now everybody knows where Scranton is. It used to be nobody knew at all, but ever since Biden and the office, yeah. everybody kind of has an idea now where Scranton is. Um, so that's where I grew up. My dad was a drummer. He played drums in Vietnam. He took his drums to Korea during the war. Um, played in all kinds of bands from rock and roll bands to soul bands to polka bands. That, his last band was a, a polka outfit called Pal, and he was the drummer and the singer. So it's kind of born into it. I always was pretty fascinated with drums. I watched my dad play at weddings. 
And I remember being really young. It's one of my earliest memories of watching the hi-hat opening and closing, and I could not figure out how it was doing it. <laughs> so I was completely fascinated. I spent like an hour just staring at it, like, how is it doing that? <laughs> so <clears throat> as my dad got older, he kind of stopped playing, and he kind of put his drums up. And I would ask him periodically, like, hey, man, can you show me how to play drums? And he always said no. And I got really frustrated. Like, why is he always saying no? So my sister started dating a drummer when I was, I don't know, about 11 or so. God, that had to so, drive your dad crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm sure he wasn't thrilled about it. But uh, so she would take me over and, and he was the first guy to actually sit me down and kind of show me um, how the layout goes. And I, I remember very vividly where he sat me down and he's like, okay, this is the bass drum pedal, this is the hi-hat pedal. He's like, think of like the gas and the brake. He's like, so put your put your foot on the gas. I looked at him. I'm like, I don't drive. So, <laughs> he's like, Oh yeah, sorry. So he, he showed me the basics and then I went home and, um, and I went immediately up in the attic where I knew there was a, my oldest brother had a drum kit up there. I'm the youngest of seven. So my oldest brother had played drums once back in the early seventies and I guess he didn't stick with it. So the drum set ended up in the attic. So I went in and I pulled it down and set it up and I started playing. And after a couple of weeks, my dad came around. He's like, all right, it seems like you're serious. He's like, so he's like, I'll, I'll show you whatever you want. He just kind of wanted, I guess because my oldest brother said they wanted a drum kit and he bought one and he lasted like a month on it. When I came around, you know, six kids later and said, Hey, I want to play drums. He's like, yeah, I've been through this before. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he was like, that's why he said no initially. He wanted to see if I was serious. So after that, he was more than happy to show me anything. But he was very adamant about not taking lessons. Okay. It was, it was a weird thing. He's very old school, and he felt that if you took lessons, you you just took on the style of the guy teaching you. Oh, uh, yeah, so yeah. It was more important to find your own voice in a way. So I really understand where he was coming from, and I and I wish that though I had had some formal lessons, but I'm completely self-taught that way. I, I used to sit in with the school band, I would play drums with them because the guys they had weren't very good. And they would ask me to join, but I, I refused to do it. Cause I, I don't know, I guess I thought it was too cool, but I wish I had honestly, just for a little bit of that structure. But, um, so I ended up just kind of completely self-teaching sitting down in the, you know, wood shedding on my favorite records of the day and just playing along with them in the basement, driving the neighborhood crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all had that first song we learned and I remember playing it like 20 times a day until literally one of my neighbors came over. He was like, Hey man, it sounds great. Can you learn another song? Please? <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's, okay, yeah, I guess I should. That, that's the same story as me. You know, I mean, I, I never had really any formal lessons and I think a good drum instructor is invaluable, but I say sure. that now after, you know, 25, 26 years of playing the instrument, you know, where I have trouble and this is actually a question to you, but where I have trouble now is if it's something that's highly technical and, and very, you know, rudiment based. I mean, you know, I never really got past, you know, paradiddles to be perfectly honest. You know, I mean, I, sure. I singles, doubles, paradiddles, you know, if it's something that's really, really technical and, and, you know, requires you to get deep into technique, that's where I kind of get lost and I have to, 
it takes me twice as long to learn it as it would somebody else. Do you have a, a similar experience? Yes, there was definitely a point, um, probably I would say like, it was around like the early 2000s. It was the first time I started working at a drum shop. I, you know, I'd worked restaurants, you know, you know, the typical, I was a musician and a wine cook. Yeah. And then I finally got my first job working at a drum store and I got to really hang out with some of the teachers there. And they had some really amazing teachers at the store. This was in Pittsburgh when I moved to Pittsburgh. And um, I started feeling really bad about myself. Like I felt like I should, you know, I should be to know this stuff. I should know all the different rudiments, you know, like I, I felt like I really missed out for not having taken lessons. And I actually did try to sit down. I found a kind of an older jazz guy and, and tried to sit down. I'm like, I'm going to really knuckle down and take some lessons. And it honestly just didn't take, like it just, it didn't work for me. Like it's just not the way I'm programmed to play. And over time I realized it's just, it's just a different way of doing things. Like some people prefer the more formative route and some people just prefer to learn it on their own. And I, I finally became comfortable with that. It took a little bit of time, but I realized that I'm more of a groove guy. I realized that all the people that I truly love and idolize are more groove oriented and not chops oriented. Right. You know, like, I'm not a huge Weckl fan and, you know, people like that. It's impressive what they do and I could really appreciate what they do, but it's just not my thing. I'm more of a Levon Helms, Steve Jordan, Bunny Carlos kind of guy. Right on. You know, I just, I just love the feeling of a good sinking groove. So, yeah, there's been times, you know, in cover gigs where I've had to learn something like – I know a good example. I, I played with the band that wanted to play Seven Days by Sting. You know, Vinnie Caluda. Yeah. Is that in like five or six? I forget. It's a complicated song. And, and definitely it was intimidating because it's just not my usual bag. It's outside my realm of, of comfort. But, you know, it just, I was like, okay, I need to sit down and actually work at this kind of thing. And over time, I got it. I'm sure some other guys would get it much quicker. But I, you know, I felt a really big sense of accomplishment when I finally did get it down, and and played it with them. And it's like, yeah, so I can do that stuff. It just might take a little extra effort. Yeah. But you know, I don't read music. I don't write music. It's just all by ear, and that's how it's always been for me. Well, so. It makes me feel a whole lot better knowing that I might still be able to make a living knowing absolutely nothing about the instrument I've yeah. <laughs> chosen to play. Uh, well, I, I realized, I remember sitting down with uh, that older teacher and I remember telling him, I'm like, I want to know everything there is to know about the drums. And at the time I was thinking in the terms of rudiments and that kind of stuff. But over time, I kind of realized that I'm more interested in the actual physicalness of the drum. Like I love taking drums apart, seeing how they tick. The first thing I do when I get a kit, no matter what condition it is, I completely take it apart. Right. Every lug, every spring, every swivel nut, clean every bit of it. Cause I want to know everything there is about to know about the instrument, knowing about woods and bearing edges at that time. I didn't know any of that. And then I realized this is way more interesting to me. Right. How the drum is made, how it makes the sounds it makes depending on the heads and the tuning and the wood and 
all those characteristics and not so much the technical side. It's, it's more feel for me than it is flashy stuff. It's just flash was never my thing. I, I love the feel of falling into a pocket and just kind of anchoring the band down and watching people dance to me. Once I see people moving, I know I'm doing my job right. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, I mean, I think, I think your current gig, you know, um, we, we talked at the very beginning about you just getting back from Europe. You know, you've been playing with, with Jesse Dayton now for how many years? Uh, a little over four years. Okay. And, you know, if if our listeners aren't familiar with Jesse, uh, first of all, get familiar with Jesse. Uh, just fantastic, great music. Um, and I don't just say that. You know, just because you're my guest here, I listen to Outlaw Country on Sirius XM. That's one of the channels that I'm dialed into a lot when I'm out driving around. Love Americana music, and and Jesse is is bringing the business, and you know, it, it's just really good music. But that's kind of the role you play in his songs is you're driving that pocket, right? For sure, and and we're at, you know the current iteration of the band is is a three piece, you know, he's gone through his phases where he's had steel player and maybe a keyboard player. But, you know, a few years ago, we kind of pulled it back to just a three piece. And, you know, when it's that open, you know, you have to really kind of keep it pulled together and filled in, you know? So it's, and, and I really love playing a three piece because it just, you know, it takes the right three guys, of course. Yeah. Well, and you're playing with you're playing with an upright bass player too, right? I mean, it's not electric bass, correct? Well, he plays both. Okay. Some songs he plays upright, and some songs he plays electric, just depending on the song. Because some of this stuff is definitely of a more rock nature, and then you know we can also play some real classic George Jones era country stuff. You know, if if we need to do that, depending on the gig, so he he can handle both sides of that equation. So between the three of us, we can cover a lot of ground sonically. And that's what's great about three pieces. That it's very open for that kind of thing. Well, and so, it makes yeah. it makes the drummer and the bass player, you know, I, I use the phrase haul the mail all the time. When you're in a three piece, your rhythm section has to haul the mail. You know, I mean, you, yeah. you got to get your job done. Otherwise, it all just falls apart. Right. And it can't just be, you know, just like a bass player who's just like hitting quarter notes. Like there's gotta be something that fills it in, but you have to be very mindful of where the groove is. Right. If somebody flips, it's very obvious. You don't have somebody else in there covering it up. So it definitely leads you to be more in the game, but it also gives you more leeway to kind of experiment a little bit more and kind of go in some other places because it's just three people. So yeah, for sure. It's, yeah, it's exciting. It's it's definitely it's fun. It's a it's a good group of guys, and as far as Jesse goes, for people listening, Jesse Dayton might not be a name that people recognize, but they will certainly recognize the people he's played with. Oh yeah, because he's played with everybody from Waylon Jennings to Rob Zombie and X. So he's he's one of those guys that spent a lot of his twenties and early thirties playing with some major names, and now he's just kind of you know, establishing his own name. Well, he's, he's doing a darn good job of it. I mean, I, and you know, I, I just, 
I, I don't, again, I don't just say it because you're on here, but I am a fan of, of the music. So um, if you don't know who Jesse is or you don't have any of the records, go go buy one is what I'm telling you. You, you won't regret it. For sure. And there's a lot to buy. I think he's, I think we're up to 10 records that he has out now. So, yeah, he's very prolific uh, at yeah. his songwriting. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, um, definitely check it out. Now, of course, I've completely screwed up the entire interview because we're, we're already in the current day and we were trying to go chronologically. We to the end. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll start at the end and work our way back. But, um, you know, I think what's cool about you, Kevin, is the, the fact that, you've basically done everything there is to do when it comes to our chosen instrument. You've worked, you know, as, as you said earlier, you've worked a retail drum shop, you run a backline company, you are doing, you know, drum restoration and repair and, you know, cutting bearing edges for folks. And obviously you're playing at a very high level as well. So when you sat down with your your older jazz instructor and said, I want to know everything there is to know about the drums, it sounds like you've gotten there. So you can dissect that however you want, but you, you really do everything as it as it pertains to our instrument. Yeah, well, when I went to college in the early 90s, I, I actually went for engineering and I, I lasted about a year and a half before I realized I don't want to do this. This isn't like the idea of getting up every day and, and going and doing engineering. Just, I know I'd make a lot of money, but I knew I'd be miserable. Yeah. It's so, a lot, a lot of math. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of math. And all the classes were at like 7 a.m. Right. And I always think of, I always think of Lewis Black, the comedian talks about having early classes. And he's like, there's only so much you can learn through one bloodshot eye. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, hundred percent. Right. So I was like, man, if, if it's this rough, just the classes, what's it going to be like when I'm actually doing it for a living? So um, I kind of pulled back, and I was like, I, you know, I really want to work with the drums. I want to see what I can make out of it. You know, much to my parents' chagrin, um, <laughs> but they were like, okay, you know, see what he wants to do. And you know, I, I dove head head first into you know, all the bands I could play with. I played with a lot of metal bands. I played with, you know, I, I sang in a band once just, I'm like, Oh, this will be fun. I don't have to call drums. I'm going to go in and be the singer. This is going to be great. And then the first show, like five seconds into the first song, I realized what a mistake I made because I'm used to <laughs> being behind a drum set. And I, I just, I did not let that microphone go. I had a death grip on it for 45 <laughs> minutes. I was so terrified. That's fantastic. <laughs> I felt so naked, as they say. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all these different bands. And, and that's when I started getting into, in the late 90s, I got into the whole, you know, as they called it, the alt-country movement. Um, and realized that, like, oh, you can take this classic country stuff that I grew up, you know, with my dad listening to. And, and then, you know, the replacements and, you know, like old ACDC and kind of jam it together and, and kind of get this really cool form that pulled all the stuff that I like into one little nugget. And, um, so I did that for a while and, you know, all the, all the whole time I'm, I'm doing restaurant gigs and, you know, whatever it takes to pay the bills while I, you know, pursue, pursue the instrument. And then I kind of fell into the whole music retail and I realized I'm like, well, this is still making money with my love of music. So to me, it was like, this, this all works. And then I, you know, this, that led to 
going into the back line, the whole back line thing. And, um, you know, it's just like, man, my whole life revolves one way or the other around music and drums. Um, I'm either, you know, getting a drum set ready to send out for somebody else to play, or I go home and I'm cutting a bearing edge for somebody's drums to get them to sound better. Or I'm, I'm playing drums myself. So, you know, in one form, it was very satisfying to know that, you know, even if I didn't become a huge rock star like we always wanted to when we were 13, you know, I, I managed to make a living and feed my family through, you know, my love of music and the instrument. So, and that's rewarding in and of itself. You know, I mean, it, I, and I'm sure your dad told you, you know, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life kind of thing, you know? Sure. But, you know, he wasn't thinking that when I told him I decided I wasn't going to go to college anymore for <laughs> to be an engineer. Of course not, you know. Well, But, you know, I mean, your family dynamic, you know, if you're the youngest of seven, they were like, well, we've got six others that, you know, went to college, right? <laughs> so, That's true. By the time I came around, they were a lot more hands-off. And, uh, <laughs> we'll let this one do whatever you want. Yeah, just like, whatever. <laughs> you know, they knew that once they heard cleared the hurdle of me they were done <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny oh man that's great well so you know i wanted i do want to talk a little bit about the backline stuff and, and kind of the restoration stuff that you do you know for for our listeners that may not be familiar backline simply refers to rental gear uh you know and, and a lot of these bands nowadays especially they don't tour the, the way we right. would traditionally think of touring, meaning getting on a bus and hauling all your gear all over the country. A lot of guys just fly into a city, their stuff is set up for them, they play the show, they get on a plane and fly back home. And and a lot of groups are, you know, literally doing shows like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and that's it. You know, they're back home yeah, on the whole, Sunday. The whole, like, yeah. They call it like the Nashville thing where you just Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday, and you're you're back home. Right but, on. You know, because live performance has become so important. You know, when the whole you know album sales just went down the the toilet. Um, you know, and they can no longer really make money on selling music now. You know, now live performance has become where people can make their money. So it's become, I think, a cheaper way for a lot of bands, especially you know older bands that don't want to be on the road for five weeks um, to just, yeah, literally just fly out. The venue will order the gear according to their specs and have it ready for them. They come and play and they're on a plane back home. Um, so it, it's become very commonplace. Plus all the festivals, you know, festivals are, are huge now. And, and honestly, the company that I do some work for here in Atlanta provides all the gear for the, the Outlaw Country Cruise and all the boats that Six Man Cruises does which is, I don't know, probably about 15 cruises now because music cruises have become a huge thing right now. So it's, it's a big business. And, you know, there's, there's several just in Atlanta. There's several backline companies. I pretty much work for all of them um, in one capacity or another. So it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting business. And it's, I mean, it's what I was doing when I, I met up with Jesse and I just kind of had to, pull back from it a bit when I started touring with Jesse. Uh, but when I'm home, I, I'll still do work for them. You know, I prepped gear. I prepped gear for the Outlaw Country Cruise that I ended up playing on just like three days after I packed all the gear. 
So I got there. I'm like, I, you know, the sound, the sound guys, the production guys are sending things up. I'm like, here, let me fix this. I, I'm like, I packed this drum. It's a drum kit. So I know exactly <laughs> what needs to happen. They're like, oh, thanks. So it's, it's kind of funny in a way. Yeah, it or is. Last year, I actually played the Outlaw Country Cruise, got off, went directly to Texas to play a weekend's worth of shows. And then I flew directly to Miami to go work on the next cruise, which was Joe Bonamassa's cruise. Okay. So I spent a week working on one of the stages and teching one of the stages. And then I got back to Miami when it docked and flew right back to Texas and played some more shows with Jesse. So it, it, it makes for some interesting scheduling. I'd imagine so. But when you've packed your own gear, you know, the back line that you're going to be playing on one of these cruises, you can't complain about the back line gear being crappy, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because but if I, there's, you know, I can make sure that all the heads that I want and all the symbols that I would like to play, there you are going to go to the stages that I'm going to be playing at. So yeah, there's you, a little benefit you to it. Pick from the A crop of symbols and heads. So, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's, if, there's a benefit. If there's one thing that is common amongst all working drummers, it's complaining about backline gear. I don't care who you are, <laughs> you know, and we all, well, have, you know, we, I spent some time, especially going over to Europe. I've, I've had some crappy kits and then I've been surprised and, yeah. and had you know, some really cool kits. Like this last time we went to pick up the gear and I got to actually walk around and look at all the, the kits they had and, you know, and kind of talk to talk with them. I was like, hey, I, you know, I do this stuff when I'm home. So, you know, we, they had they had a vintage stainless steel Ludwig kit there. Oh wow! Well, I want. Why can't I play that kit? Why did I get the recording custom? Right. You know. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> or sure. Or they had, you know, they had some really cool like Sonor stuff. Uh, you know, because it's overseas, so it's much more common to see Peisty and Sonor and things like that. So, but you know, I I've done tours on Pearl Exports. Yeah. You know, and just you make it work, you know, with symbols that sound like manhole covers. <laughs> yeah, that that's usually the issue is the symbols more so than the drums. The I mean, symbols. yeah, definitely after the first tour overseas, I learned my lessons, bring my own symbols. Yeah, for sure. You, know, you, you always want to try to pack as light as you can. But man, that is you can mess with tuning on a drum kit or change our heads or something. But man, if you get a, a crummy symbol, you can't tune it. That's right. It's yeah. either there or it's not. I mean, you know. Exactly. Um, you know, well, so I find that just immensely interesting in that, you know, you're, you're working on a lot of kits. And I'm sure, you know, the backline companies that are in Atlanta, if they're doing, you know, all these different cruises, there's probably a primo selection of vintage gear to choose from as well, right? Well, um, usually... Yeah, but each company generally has, you know, a vintage kit that they'll have. It like, here's our, you know, here's our vintage kit. Um, the, the company that I do work for, most of the time, actually, their vintage kit was one of mine that I sold to them. Um, <laughs> of course it is. So anybody that wants to play a early 40s Slingerland Radio King, uh, you know, I'll tell you where to go. Right. Um, so they did, generally, the ones around here don't have a ton of that vintage stuff. You know, usually it's an upcharge if somebody wants to play it. Um, I've, I've actually rented out my kit. They, you know, subcontracted me. You know, if somebody comes in and was like, hey, I want, you know, a vintage kit in these sizes, they know they can contact me if they don't have it, and I'll probably have it. So I've, I've rented my, out my kits for, like, Modesky Martin and Wood, um, I think just a year ago, one of my Ludwig kits went for Iggy Pop. 
which was really cool. I was like, take pictures of my kit with Iggy Pop around. Yeah, no um, doubt. Yeah, I was excited about it. I had a show myself to play that night, so I couldn't go myself. But I'm like, I need, I need photo proof. Um, <laughs> did you, so yeah, did you take out extra insurance before that gear? I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was a little nervous, but, you know, the excitement of it is outweighed. Yeah. But, yeah, actually, yeah, there's not a ton of, of vintage stuff, honestly. There's some. And, you know, each company will have some, but, you know, most, most of the stuff that's going out is, you know, DW 9000 hardware, you know, DW or Yamaha kit or, you know, your, your, your typical stuff. And then a lot of companies will have some of the boutique stuff, you know, like CNC and, you know, some of those smaller companies too. So, right. um, you can usually find what you need one way or the other. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I've seen some of these, you know, equipment riders and stuff and, you know, back in the day, you know, when, when I was doing more out on the road, you know, I was, I, I owned a DW kit and that's what I was playing most of the time. And you can always find that at a backline company, but I've seen exactly. some requests that's like, you know, Yamaha recording custom or equivalent. Well, what, what do, what does or equivalent mean when you're talking about a <laughs> Yamaha recording custom? You know what I mean? Yeah, Is that, it any Birch drum set? I don't know. You know? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, in, in my time, I've seen some some silly stuff. I mean, and as a lesson for anybody out there who's you know maybe putting together a rider, I always put like first choice, second choice, third choice. Yeah, and and that really takes the guesswork out of it. Um, so when, whenever you see those, you're like, okay, yeah, we can work with this. But one funny story was, um, and I don't remember who it was. It was kind of like a jazz supergroup, from what I remember. Uh, was renting some gear and they were coming in to rehearse and then they were going to, you know, take the gear for the actual gig. And the guy wanted uh, an 18 inch Pearl kick drum. Now we had a Pearl kit with a lot of sizes, but we had every kick drum size available except for 18 because usually you just don't get a lot of requests for Pearl 18 inch kick drums. If somebody gets an 18, it's usually Gretsch or Yamaha or something like that. Right. So I was talking to my guy, I'm like, look, I, I said, I've got a black, Pearl kit with the other sizes that he needs. And I've got a black Yamaha 18 inch kick drum or a 20 inch Pearl kick drum, you know, what, whatever is best for him. It's, they're all the same color. So, you know, no big deal. So he, he gets on the phone and he explains to him and he comes back and he said, uh, he said that this drummer cannot emotionally or physically play a 20 inch kick drum. <laughs> I said emotionally. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Like, I, don't even, I, I don't even know how to process that. Oh, man. Like, I don't know if that means he would go to play it and start crying. It was, it was bizarre. <laughs> it was a bizarre thing. Uh, so, I forget how we ended up solving that. I think he just ended up using the Yamaha kick drum with Pearl Toms and Pearl Snare. So. Yeah, I mean, most of these guys, when they do a backline kit, if there's an endorsement or, or something like that, that's why you see gaff tape on the on the logo sure. head, you know. I mean, yeah. for, so that's some inside baseball for folks. When you see somebody on, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and there's gaff tape on the front bass drum head, it's because they have a backline kit of a, of a competing manufacturer. So... 
Um, exactly. And they don't, they don't want to upset their company. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, so uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, we, we kind of scratched the surface on the vintage stuff. You've got quite the, the collection, I know, and, and you don't have to give anything away that, that you don't want to. But when did the collecting of vintage drums bug bite you? Oh, I can tell you exactly what it was at the time. So after I started playing, I told you I, I brought my brother's drum kit down from the attic, and that's what I learned on. And it was a 1971 Slingerland Modern Combo. I, I know exactly what it is now, but at the time, it was just an old drum kit. Right. So on my 14th birthday, I got my first Pearl Export, and that was my drum kit that I played forever. Um smoky chrome i had four rack toms and two kick drums and and after after a couple of gigs i realized man hauling this second kick drum is kind of a pain in the butt so <laughs> i'll just go with one um and i so i played that pearl export forever and um and my dad had long since stopped playing he got arthritis in his hand and it was kind of hard for him to play so every time i would go home to visit i would ask him like hey you know kids just sitting in the in the basement can i take it he's like nope you know, he was just like, absolutely not. I was like, okay, you know, just asking because it's just sitting there. And I think his reservation was probably because when I was younger and dumber, um, you know, his kit was a 1948 Slayer Radio King. And it had all cast skin heads. And he played just one cymbal. He had this bold Zildjian, I think, 14-inch, just thin crash. And that was that and a hi-hat is all he played. He didn't have a ride or crashes. He just had that one. And, um, you know, I remember being a meathead and playing and breaking a drum head and I'd be like, oh, I'll just go grab one from dad's kit, not realizing it's a casket head. That's yeah. totally different yeah. than my pinstripe or whatever I had on there. So of course I just rip shredded right through that head and, uh, you know, I have to come home and he'd come home from work and I'd be like, Oh, sorry, I broke this head. And then, you know, I, I started playing on his cymbal and I ended up trashing that too. <laughs> I had no technique. This was the backfire of him not getting me lessons, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, kind of bummed him out. And I'm sure that was a little penance that he wouldn't let me take the drum kit because uh, of what I had done when I was a teenager. But this was many years later. And, and finally, uh, the end of 97, I was getting ready to go home. And uh, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, if you want to take that drum kit, go ahead and take it. Oh, cool. So, you know, I threw it in the car, drove back to Pittsburgh. And I remember I spent New Year's Eve that year sitting on the floor, taking that thing apart and cleaning it and uh, got new heads on it. And like a month or two later, I played my first gig on it and I went to do sound check. And, you know, they're like, all right, give me the kick. And I just laid in you know, that 24 inch kick drum with, you know, it's the old Radio King, like mahogany with the thick reinforcement hoops on it. And it just sounded like, the heavens parted when I hit that kick drum, like literally that first hit. And I just immediately went like, this is the sound. I don't know what it is or why, but this sound is just what I'm looking for. It was very different than a Pearl export. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I finished my sound check and this, the sound booth was like up, like up some stairs away from the stage. And I watched the guy get up. I watched him walk out, walk all the way down the steps, walk onto the stage, right to me. He's like, I'll give you $3,000 right now for this drum kit. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm not selling it. He's like, I'm serious. He's like, this kid is amazing and I want it right now. I'm like, no, no, no. You know, it's, it's personal, you know? 
And every time I played there, he was like, you sure you don't want it? He's like, if I get that drum kit, he goes, I'm going to put it in a humidor. It's going to be sealed off. And, and <laughs> but one thing my dad always taught me was that drums are not museum pieces. He's like, they're meant to be played. That's right. And to this day, I still, you know, I've got a lot of vintage drums, but I have a whole thing that if I'm not playing one, then I shouldn't have it. So I always try to kind of cycle through all the drums that I have and make sure that they're all getting played. Because in the back of my head, I can hear him going like, nope, you know, if you're not playing them, you shouldn't have them. So I've sold a lot of drums that I didn't necessarily want to, but I wasn't playing them. So I didn't feel like I should have them, that somebody else should be playing them. Well, um, so, there's, But there's... that's where that bug started, that, that 42 or 48 Radio King. And that's what got me into like, why does this drum sound so much different than the Pearl drum kit I have? And, and so I had that kit in my Pearl, and I remember thinking, oh, I got two drum kits. It's going to be cool. I'll play them both. I never played that Pearl again. Yeah. You know, well, so I mean, there, there's, just got rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, and, and look, I had a Pearl export kit. That was my first kit growing up. And, you know, I you grew up in the eighties and nineties. You had a Pearl export. Kit. That's exactly right. Because I mean, they were everywhere. They owned MTV. So everybody wanted that, you know, and it was very affordable and, you know, all those things, but, you know, it, and, the Pearl Export stuff, you know, I, I think they called it Philippine mahogany, which is really just a fancy way of saying Luan. Um, yes, exactly. Um, you know, there is a difference between wood that has been off the tree, off, the, you know, out of the ground for 60, 70 years. It's just the way it dries. And, you know, there's a million different scientific things that goes into it. But a vintage... And I feel that... Another thing in that, too, because you could take the same material like, you know, DW makes a classic series, which is basically a recreation of the, the Radio King. And I've taken them apart and looked at them. It's very well done. You know, the reinforcement rings, the, the mahogany, it all looks right. But it still sounds different because this vintage drum kit's been played for decades. That's exactly right. So all the right. vibrations going through that wood is what's really to me making a difference you have type of wood the bearing edge the tuning all that stuff plays a part but vibrations going through wood for decades is going to open up that sound so there's you know and that's what fascinates me with drums just all the different things that come together you know it's not like a guitar where it's like with the strings and these pickups you know that's you know where you're getting that electric guitar sound it's it's not there's not so many kind of random things it's just like with tuning people come in and to the store and just you know it's always a puzzle on how to tune a drum and i was kind of fascinating it's actually it's wide open it's whatever you want it to be you know and 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 to me that's fascinating but it's frustrating to most other people oh yeah you don't plug it into a tuner and say okay you're in tune that's right well you know i mean i think you know you bring up a really good point about guitars you know guitarists are, are you know notoriously picky about well you know i'm going to switch out this pickup for this other pickup and you know they've got their pedals and all that different stuff for us it's a little bit harder to dial in the sound that we hear in our brain you know i mean a it's more ambiguous yeah. It, it, it is. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, and there's nothing that I love more than, you know, popping in a pawn shop and every now and then you'll find something that's, you know, kind of gold in there. But, you know, you you tap on a snare drum and you go, ah, 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 this one's it. You know, that's yeah. that's it's what I've been. Something. 
there's something about it and you don't know what it is. You can't quantify it. You just know it when you hear it. Yeah. And I think that's why it all has always driven me to be like, I want to tear this drum apart and see what makes it tick. And like, it, it just, I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating, but yeah, it, it is even better when there's a story behind the drum kit. And I've been really fortunate that, um, I, I've, I've got a lot of drum kits that have these really cool and, and interesting stories behind them. And, um, you know, there, if you ever talk to Josh, um, and I won't give too much away about our secret group, but me and Josh have a very good friend named Davis. And the three of us are kind of like three musketeers. And <laughs> my friend Davis always gives me stuff about, about how lucky I am to have lucked into all these really good deals on drum kits. You just keep your eyes open. You'll eventually find them. You know, it's harder these days with the advent of eBay and reverb and all that stuff. It's not like you can find stuff at a garage sale all the time, but it still happens. And when it does, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, for sure. When you, when you have a good history and like a story and then, you know, you really kind of get to know the drum and I'm immediately like, what heads am I going to put on this? And what is it going to sound like? You know, it's just, there's just so many different things that are going to come together to make this sound. So, yeah. yeah, I I get excited about drums. Yeah, well, I do too. And you know, still on my bucket list, I've I've been uh, you know searching for uh, you know late '60s, early '70s Ludwig psychedelic red kit that is still in good shape. And you know, the green always fades out. If any sunlight hits that finish whatsoever, the green turns to kind of a yellowy gold color and. It's just really hard to find them that still look brand new. And I did find a kit once um, that looked right. Everything was was great about it, but it sounded like poop. I mean, it just, it was not a good classic Ludwig kit. It didn't sound right. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's like I always say is people think that a vintage drum kit, immediately because it's vintage, it's going to sound awesome. And it's not the case because back then there was no, it was very handmade. Yeah. You know, they were, and especially in the sixties when Ringo hit and they were pumping out, working three shifts at Ludwig and just kicking out drum kits. There's a lot of green wood going into those kits. And I've, I've heard some dogs, you know, and yeah. that's part of the excitement to me too. Is I, I get a, a kit and I bring it home and I tear it apart. I'm like, I'm doing all this work. I, you know, it'll take sometimes like a week really take it apart like I like to do and I soak all the parts for three days to get all the grime and grit off of it and clean everything and reassemble it and I'm like after all this work it could sound like crap yeah but that's <laughs> kind of the gamble and kind of the excitement about it right yes and every now and then you you strike gold now let me ask you this since you're a, a vintage guy like if you buy a kit and you know one of the lug casings is just beyond repair, do you replace it with period correct stuff? That is definitely towards the, more in the beginning of my collecting phase. I was very adamant about that kind of thing, and then over time, you know, especially when you have a kid and money becomes tighter, <laughs> you know, there's times where I'm like, I could wait to find, you know, this part, or I could just find a, you know, a modern representation of it. So I could at least play the drum. Right. So I've laxed a little bit on it. You know, I do have some rules. Like if I recover a drum kit, you know, I, it, it has to be recovered in a, in a color that was offered in that year. Okay. Like I'm not going to take, um, 
a pearl kit and wrap it in mod orange. To me, it's just not right. You know, it, it, and that's just something I learned. There's a guy named Jack Lawton who uh, has Lawton Drum Company in, in Pennsylvania. And he was the guy who first put me on this path of working on drums and how, how it works. Um, and he's kind of the sage master of all the guys that work on drums or vintage fanatics. If you m- mention Jack Lawton, they'll know exactly who you're talking about. Oh, yeah. But he's kind of the guy that drilled that into me. He's like, stick with the colors that they offered. You know, it's, it's so it, that's, I still kind of rely on that, but I've laxed a little bit on making sure that, because parts get really expensive. Well, yeah, especially it if it's a, hard it to find. Years ago. Yeah. Now is it becoming more rare and, and people are really charging an arm and leg for stuff. So, you know, I definitely don't like drilling extra holes for things. I'll find a way to do it without having to drill extra holes and, and I'll keep the finish, you know, something that was period correct. But other than that, you know, with Slingerland, that's what's nice about Ludwig is Ludwig makes parts that are exactly the same as they made. <laughs> yeah. They've the never changed time. anything, yeah. which is awesome. You yeah. know, and even if you want to change, you know, like I have a Ludwig standard kit, but if I want to make a classic lugs on it, the whole spacing is exactly the same. Right. So that's a really good thing that Ludwig does. Awesome. Um, sling on, there's a lot of reproduction sling on hardware that, out there that's really good. So, you know, I've, I've used some of it, you know, and with the understanding of like, I come across some, some period correct stuff, I'll flip it out. But now to me, now it's more important that I get to play this drum kit than to hold off until I get everything to be, you know, exactly what it should be. So, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I mean, one of my things that, that, I did here just recently, you know, my, my mom passed last year and I sent my, um, black beauty, my six and a half by 14 black beauty. I had always wanted one engraved by the great John Aldridge. And of course, yeah, I got a hold of John. He was like, of course I'll do it. He was like, what do you want? And I said, well, this is going to be kind of a tribute to my mom. I want her name, her date of birth, her date of death on there. Other than that, make it look nice. And so he, he engraved it and sent it back to me. And of course I was showing it off to, you know, all my drummer friends and on some of the forums and people were like, are you going to play it? I was like, of course I'm going to play it. It's a tool, you know, why would I just put it in a case? You know, I mean, I, I own a, 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 a drum that was owned by John Bonham. Um, now do I tour with that? No. Do I take it to the studio and whack it occasionally? You betcha. You know, I mean, why would you not, you know, so like I said, drums are meant to be played. Yeah. I mean, I just, I find it interesting that some guys are really purists. So I I had to ask you where you fall on that spectrum, you know, and I can understand guys being purists. And if I could afford to be a purist, (laughs) I probably would, but you know, it just gets so expensive. And at, at some point, you know, I have to make a concession. You're like, well, is it more important for me to get to play this drum or more important for me to be 100% period correct? To me, as long as I'm not defiling it with a drill, you know, and, you know, sticking a pearl mount on a, you know, vintage Gretsch kit or something like that. And, yeah. you know, and color-wise, it kind of all makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I could slide on some other stuff. Absolutely. You know, to me, it's more important that I get to play this drum. I want to hear what it sounds like. You know, I want to hear what it sounds like in the context of a band. So, yeah, um, well, that's yeah, that's how it is for me. Well, that, I, I'd love to see that Black Beauty. That sounds amazing. Well, it's awesome. I'll I'll text you some 
some pictures when we get done here. It's really cool. And and John's just a sweetheart of a guy. I mean, I'm sure you've had dealings with I've always with heard him. so. Yeah. yeah he, but, I mean, I just can't. The way he does that is so labor-intensive. And uh, he does it for so many companies. Yes, he does. Like I, I continue to see him on it. Man, he just must engrave all day long. And he does it old school. Yeah. So it's... <laughs> His hands, at the end of the night, he must just soak them in ice buckets or something. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and, and he's out on the road teching for Brian Hitt right. of REO Brian Speedwagon, right. you know. So um, when he's not on the road, you know, when they have a break and, and their tour routing, you know, they typically do a couple weeks, three weeks, and then they'll have a week or two off. He goes home and engraves all day, you know, until dinner time. And he has dinner with his wife every night and then he engraves some more. And, you know, he's to the point now, though, where he's got it down to a science. You know, I mean, he really does and he can just mow through them. But it's it's amazing to me that he keeps up with the volume of work that he does. And it's just it, it's him and no one else. I mean, there's, there's I've never heard of anybody else. It's like here's like second in line for engraving like it's just john aldrich that's that's right i'm yeah. sure there's guys out there that do it but i've never heard of them you know it's just if i see something engraved, i immediately am like oh john aldrich probably did that yeah, that's for the most part yes i mean there are others out there but you know he's he's the gold standard when it comes to that stuff um and he is well, so that kind of brings me to to my next question for you. You know, when you're out on the road with Jesse, if you're not using backline gear, do you rotate some of your vintage stuff to take out on the road with Jesse? Or ha, ha, what are you playing out on the road, I guess? Good question. So when I first started playing with Jesse, he was temporarily living in Atlanta. It was just a temporary thing. And that's how I met him. And actually partially through Josh Touchton. True story. Uh-oh. I met there he is. The devil appears. He's just always there, isn't he? He is. Uh, just waiting in the wings. <laughs> um, Hi, Josh. We love you. Love you, boy. So, um, so when we were starting tours, we were starting in Atlanta, and the bass player was living in Texas, so he would fly out to meet us. And we would drive out. So at that point, I was just taking, you know, whatever I wanted to take for that run. And you know, I've got um, like a mid-70s Blue Agate kit, Slingerland, um, that is kind of my go-to. It just works in every room I've ever put it in. You know, some kits just function well in certain rooms. and other rooms, you're like, eh. But this kit works everywhere. Um, I've used that. I've taken out my Ludwig Vistolite. I've taken out, um, I have like a mid-90s. Um, Slingerland, you know, made in Nashville when Gibson first bought Slingerland. Yeah, the Sam Baco era. Exactly. And guess who I bought that from? Josh Touch. Yeah, of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I would, t- I would take out those, uh, those kits. And then Jesse moved back to Austin. So now the tours were starting in, from Texas, and I was flying out to meet them. And um, it dawned on me one day we're on the road. I'm like, oh, geez, when he when he goes, I'm like, either I got to like send one of my vintage kits to sit in Texas when we're not playing or I've got to figure out something else. Like I, the idea of one of my vintage kits just languishing in Austin, you know, 14 hours away from me in between tours just was a little <laughs> too much to bear. So uh, here's a running theme. Guess who I call? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> And at the time, Josh was at Natal. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, I explained it to him, and he's like, he's like, all right, man, you're an artist now. What do you need? <laughs> and um, the, I was the like, easiest well, endorsement application ever. I actually was like, is there paperwork for me to fill out? And, you know, like, it's like, I, just, I'll, we'll get it. Don't worry about it. Cause that's just how Josh is. He's yeah. just the nicest person on the planet. Um, so at the time they just come out with the cafe racer stuff. And, um, I was like, well, I just want the vintage sizes. I want 14 to 24, nine by 13, 16 by 16. He's like, sure, get it done. And, you know, a month or two later it showed up and that, that is my road kit. And man, it sounds great. You know, it's a kit that, I don't mind if the opening band plays, you know, it's not one of my vintage pieces. that I'll worry about somebody ham fisting, you know, worst case scenario, something breaks, I can get a replacement for it, you know? Right. So, but it sounds really, really good. I, the lat, we just recorded a, a covers record and I use that exclusively on it and it sounds amazing. Um, Jesse even mentioned on this last story, he's like, this is the best kick drum sound I've ever had on any record I've ever done. So it's good stuff and solid and you know so that's currently my 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 touring kit and then all my my vintage stuff gets to sit with me so i can go out in the garage and look at it every night and and smile (laughs) yeah absolutely that's awesome man (laughs) i can go out and count all my kits and make sure they're all there well don't we all do that i mean really you know occasionally we're gonna be honest with ourselves we all do that yes we all do that it's kind of like you know I've, i've got buddies that are really great fishermen and they open up their tackle box in the middle of December, January when they're not fishing and they count their lures. And it's like, you know, it's just that connection to it. You know, it's just around the corner. Yeah. Same exact thing. It's exactly like that. So, well, cool, man. Well, listen, I want to be respectful of your time. We've barely scratched the surface, so we've got to have you back. Um, There's just so so much that that you and I could talk about, and hopefully it's entertaining for our listeners, uh, you know, to hear Jamie and Kevin geek out on drums for an hour. Um, But, you know, as is the tradition on the drum shuffle, we got to ask you for a good piece of advice. What would you offer up to other drummers, other musicians? Well, see, because I'm a listener to the show, I knew this question was coming. Um, (laughs) And I thought about it. I was like, I know he's going to ask me about advice. And honestly, I narrowed it down to three pieces of advice. Okay. If you don't mind. No, no. I mean, this is your show, brother. Um, The first one was one that my dad gave me uh, when I first started playing. Once he realized I was serious and he kind of came in, I remember him sitting me down. He's like, all right, you know, here's the deal. Um, you're going to be the first one to show up and the last one to leave. And, you know, you're going to be carrying the most stuff. And to this day, like, you know, I know some drummers who, you know, they're like, Oh, this, you know, this gig, it's, it's not really an important gig. I'm just going to take a kick and a snare and like <laughs> one crash. And I, and I, I don't abide by that. I bring my kid. If I'm going to be playing somewhere for three hours, I want to have my stuff. And, you know, I've, I've made that pact with myself. You know, I'm not going to complain about how much stuff I have to carry. And then every now and again, I'll get a bass player complaining about how much they have to carry. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> See all the stuff I have to carry? Um, but in that, that whole thing, he's, um, he's like, he's like, if you make a mistake, don't stop playing. And to me, that was one of the first pieces of advice that I found really helpful because it's, you know, it could be an inclination to be like, oh, I messed that up. Let's start over. 
but to this day, if, if something goes wrong, I just keep going and I can hear that in my head, like keep playing, Yep. you know, eventually, eventually it'll catch up. And if you make a mistake, just repeat it, you know, and then it becomes part of the song. <laughs> He's like drums are the easiest thing to cover a mistake with. So that's my first piece of advice is to, uh, never stop playing even if something messes up. Uh, the second one I kind of learned when I was younger, kind of by accident was, you know, I spent a lot of time in the basement shedding the records and stuff. And I, I don't even know what led me to do it, but I started setting my kit up in all kinds of different configurations. You know, I'd move the toms around and, you know, really try to kind of play with it. And later on, I realized it really was beneficial. It made it much easier talking about backline. You know, sometimes you have to share a kit. It makes it a lot easier to kind of acclimate to something that's not your typical setup. So inadvertently, I really served myself well by doing that earlier on in, you know, in the playing. And then one of the third one is a more recent thing um, where I really probably playing with Jesse because it's a, a much more kind of swingier kind of style. In, in the music that we play. And I've, in the last few years, I've really kind of gravitated to kind of that Ringo by way of Bunny Carlos kind of swingy thing. And, and I've learned that kind of putting your body into it really helps with the motion to the, almost to the point where when I'm playing, I'm almost kind of dancing on my throne a little bit. Like I'm moving my whole body with it and not just my hands. Yeah. And to me, that really helps with the feel. And I think it really helps translate to, to me, it's like, well, if I can kind of dance to this on my throne, then the people out there can definitely dance to it, you know? Yeah, so for sure. that's something kind of more recently that like, and I fell into that once again, too. It just, over time, I kind of naturally started, I noticed my whole body was kind of moving with it. And that really helps with that kind of swingy feel. So there's my three pieces of advice. Oh, all of them, great pieces of advice. And to kind of expand on number three, you know, it took me 20 years of play in to realize that if I just lean back a little bit on my throne, I'm going to naturally kind of get behind the beat just a little bit. And if I lean forward, I'm going to be right up on top. You know what I mean? It's just like these little things. There's definitely a connection to the rest of your body. Yeah. To what you're doing that I never thought about, you know, and up until the last like five years of playing, I was really like, oh, I can actually feel the difference. Yeah. And it it really, really helps. Uh, I I just never really thought about, you're just always thinking about your feet and your hands. But, you know, there's definitely more to it. Your whole body is really involved in playing drums. Another thing that I find fascinating about drums, because it's so about touch and 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 the person's feel because it's such a direct line from the person to the instrument there's no electronics in between so like that direct relationship with the instrument i find just endlessly fascinating so yeah if you ever want to come by yeah have me come back and we'll we could talk for hours yeah we absolutely drums. could and nothing and, i like geek out more than, on than drums especially vintage drums well we will so. we will absolutely make it a point to have you back uh real soon because this has just been great and uh i know everybody touches has been on twice i mean yeah we, we yeah. i've got to be on twice 
<laughs> can't let Josh get ahead of you on the on the tally Absolutely sheet. <laughs> so, well, you know, love you, Josh. It, it, yeah, we love you, Josh. But it, if I have you back a second time, you know what Josh is going to do? He's going to call me and he's going to be like, "Hey, man, uh, Ludwig's releasing this super duper, uh, <laughs> you know, limited edition kit. I got to come on and talk about it." You know, just to head me off. Yeah. What we should really do. One of these days, we'll have me and Josh on at the same time. Man, there's, see, there's the honey in the rock. From your lips to God's ears, that's what we need to do. And and yeah, we, we need to get the uh, the secret club, the the triumvirate of the the vintage guys, and we'll do a round table. So we, we've got it planned bring, out. You want to bring all three of us in? I'm telling you, the jokes will fly and it's going to get silly. Okay, but well... There'll be some good drum talk. I can tell you that. I can see the listener mail flying in already as soon as people hear this. So, <laughs> Kevin, brother man. That's called a teaser right there. That's right. That's what we call a teaser in the biz. <laughs> Kevin, brother, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time to come on. We'll have you back anytime. Uh, everybody, go out, check out Jesse Dayton. Uh, see Kevin, walk up to him after the show, introduce yourself. He's a great guy. He'll, he'll stand there and talk to you about vintage drums all night. Absolutely. All right, Kev, we'll talk to you real soon, brother. Great. Thanks for having me on and good talking to you. All right. See you, man. See ya. Okay, everybody, that's going to wrap up episode 62 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We just simply can't do this without each and every one of you listening to this show week after week. Special thanks go out to Kevin Charney for taking some time to come on. We, we just had a blast. Uh, I really enjoyed having Kevin on the show, and hopefully we'll have him back here sometime soon. Uh, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. We have some guests coming up here over the next few weeks that uh, I promise you, you're not going to want to miss. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Peter Kogan. Uh, Peter has a new record out, just doing tons and tons of great work, and he has just all kinds of wonderful, wonderful experience uh, in the world of drumming. And uh, hey, here's a bit of news uh, coming up here in just a few weeks. The great Sean Pelton from Saturday Night Live and live from Daryl's house fame. I uh, recently caught up with Sean. So we're going to have that episode coming up here in just a few weeks. Uh, so you're not going to want to miss those. We love hearing from you throughout the week. Uh, send us your emails to the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do answer every single one of those. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, check out all those social media links. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We do have some cool stuff that we put out throughout the week, and you can follow us on those channels as well. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. So, until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. 